I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. A refreshing show today, not our typical slate of stories, at least for the most part. We begin with a long breakdown of Saudi Arabia's new partnership with the PGA. I give you a comprehensive uh, list of all of the facts that we know, a lot of open questions, but also I think a different analysis than you're, you're going to get anywhere else because I think I weave in some of the modern politics that play into these decisions and who are the winners and losers in all of this and also what this says about this new era of influence peddling that doesn't just take place within the United States, but is taking place in the geopolitical level. I think it's a super fascinating topic and not just because I'm a golfer and I think you'll agree when you hear it. And then we get into the rest of the news, including immigration and trans and 2024 stuff and beyond. Our guest today is aviation expert Jay Ratliff, who explains a bizarre plane crash that took place near Washington before he offers a neat trick that will help you outsmart airlines and perhaps even get some free perks. He's a great conversationalist, so we'll hear from him after the monologue. Let's get into it. news story in the world right now is a golf story and this is something that I had to admit I was chuckling a little bit to Mrs. Dr. Marlowe last night because the the fact of the matter is uh, it is a joke in my house that do I really have to talk about trans again today do I really got to talk about Trump versus Ron DeSanctimonious today uh, it, it is can, can I just talk about golf on the show and this is the one day where it actually is the biggest story in the world so uh, it's not the sport itself it is uh, sort of the foreign policy changing globe uh, era of the oligarch conversation that's taking place because yesterday there was some sort of a partnership or some sort of an alliance that was forged between the upstart Saudi-backed golf league called Live which is funded by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi, Saudi Arabia, the PGA Tour, and the DP World Tour, which is formerly known as the European Tour. And probably they'll be, as the paper dries, there'll be more professional golf tours folded in as well. And it's a pretty remarkable thing, anyone who's followed this over the last couple of years, which I have, as a partially because of the news, it is an interesting story, it's a news story, but for me it was largely a hobby. But for yesterday, it was one of those days where a lot of people are waking up and they're just thinking, oh, well, I guess we're talking about golf today because this is the biggest thing. Um, so what's gone on is that the Saudi Arabian government, which has basically a limitless amount of money, I mean, the biggest company in the world is Aramco Saudi Oil, and largely do the policies of one big Joey the Biden, Joe the Biden, or even richer than they were before, because America chooses not to tap our own resources, even though we have the most oil of the world now in the United States. It doesn't matter. We don't drill for it because Joe Biden doesn't like it. Uh, and we've seen Russia squeeze, et cetera. And what's happened is that the Saudis have gotten even more uh, money than they already had. And they're led by a man named Mohammed bin Salman, who is maybe the most ambitious man on the planet, um, and also one of the most ruthless men on the planet. Uh, one of the people, if there isn't, I don't think there's a close second in the world who uh, uh, doesn't give an F, and I'm not thinking of the letter F, 
about what, let's say, the American media or what the Twitterverse thinks. And he's on a mission, and he's on a mission not just to make Saudi Arabia a world power, but to make Saudi Arabia the New York and the Las Vegas and the London and the Washington, D.C., whatever's your favorite city. That's what they, he wants Saudi Arabia to be like, well, whatever that identity is, and showing that the Saudis are open for business and they're willing to put an infinite amount of money into doing that. And so one of the things they're doing is they're doing some sports washing, and that is they're trying to buy PR with, their, with, uh, with money. And they've got a theory that everyone's got a price and they can meet everyone's price. So one thing they did is they started a golf league because the PGA Tour has been incredibly vulnerable. The PGA Tour has made some huge mistakes over the years that I think some of you who watch it at all uh, would, would see. Um, some of them you will see, hear about a lot in the golf press and some of them you will not because the golf press is liberal media and they're bubbled. Uh, the, among the problems that they've had that you might hear about is that the PGA Tour's product, even though it's the preeminent golf league in the world, is sort of mediocre. Um, there's not been a lot of great narratives uh, ever since Tiger's fall from uh, his superior status, Tiger Woods. Um, and it feels like this latest generation of talent, there's not a lot of super interesting people off the course. There's not a lot of great personalities. There's not a lot of classic rivalries. And they're, now the game is getting so data-driven that it's lost a little bit of its art. A lot of it is really about uh, the percentages and numbers and uh, analysis. Um, and it, it's, it takes a long time to play the rounds. The play's gotten very slow. And the TV product has never been very good. It's a NBC and CBS run it, and they don't do, neither of them do a particularly good job. Um, I think they've made some improvements over the last couple of years. Part of it has been driven by this pressure from an outside group. Um, but it's just, it's just not great. It's just not great. You're kind of praying that hopefully a couple compelling people on Sunday afternoon are, are in the mix to compete for the tournament. And, and this is, that's just one issue. But other issues, though, I think are more significant. Um, which is the way the league was structured is it really favored on the pay scale the people who are mediocre talents. So no other league does this. The NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, the, the professional soccer, um, the, the, you can, the leagues favor the best players in the league in terms of pay, pay scale. doesn't happen in golf. In golf, it's the league is everyone makes money who does well. But the people who really bring in the eyeballs, uh, the top 10 or so players in the world, they're not paid a outsized level the same way they are in other professional sports. So the Saudis could saw that as an opening. And then one other thing that started to happen over the last couple of years, and are, are you sitting down, particularly if any of you are in golf media and think I don't know what I'm talking about, uh, which is wrong because they follow this incredibly closely. But I, I will tell you one thing that is not going to be discussed. The PGA Tour went woke. It did. It went woke. And it is uh, evident in a couple of key examples. They decided that it was appropriate to cancel the once a year tournament that was held at Trump National in Doral, Florida. Second of all, they decided they would cancel a PGA championship that was going to be held at Trump's golf course in Bedminster, Florida, which is supposed to be an amazing, amazing course. Uh, Trump has one of the Greatest courses, maybe top 10 courses in the world, Trump Turnberries in Scotland, which should be hosting British Open tournaments. I don't remember the last time there was one. So who are the type of people that follow golf the most? 
I will give you a hint. They are, in fact, I'll tell you, it's not a hint. It's middle-aged white guys who aren't broke. So how do middle-aged white guys who aren't broke vote? Ladies and gentlemen, drum roll please. The survey says they vote for people like Trump. They like Trump. Now, what's interesting is you've seen so often over the years, uh, sports people, you know, Black Lives Matter on the floor at the NBA. You've got all the slogans on the back of the NFL helmet. Uh, all the all that stuff that we've seen over the years in terms of politics. You know, one of the original sports leagues that went a little bit political was the uh, PGA Tour, was professional golf. That there was discussion in the '90s of the U.S. Ryder Cup team. I don't think it ended up happening. I gotta I gotta look this up, but I don't know if it ended up happening. There's a lot of discussion in the '90s of the Ryder Cup team, which is the American team that represents our country in the uh, most prestigious team event on the golf calendar. It really is the best event of the golf calendar, the Ryder Cup, which comes up every two years where the continent of Europe puts together a team and the USA puts together a team they play each other. But there was discussion in the 90s of boycotting a White House visit because they thought Bill Clinton was too liberal. How quaint is that in this modern times? So... All of this is type of stuff that makes a guy like MBS, who's going to a pockets pockets that are so deep as unfathomable, start seeing. Okay, this is an opportunity here. I can buy myself some PR. Uh, and oh yeah, well the one other thing I forgot is that the PGA Tour does a lousy job of uh, growing the game internationally. A very lousy job of this. You know they they think that growing the game internationally means they cut a twenty year deal with China, which is what they did. They got a twenty year partnership with China, with with China. Occasionally, they put tournaments around the world. They're rare. The best Americans don't all show up there. A couple of them show up. They ignore some of the best golf courses in the world, particularly those in Australia. And so they just don't do a great job of making it a, a real international game, even though it could be. So it just all left the PGA just wide open, vulnerable, ready to get attacked, and they did. So this group came by Live Golf, which was head by Greg, Greg Norman, who was one of the um, you know, top players from maybe a decade or so ago. Um, won a couple of major championships. Was number one in the world for a really long time. And also just seems sort of like a guy, another guy who doesn't give an F. Doesn't care about negative media attention. They started up, it's been going on for two years. So the league itself has a team element. It's shorter rounds. It's a little more, they try to make it a little more fun, music and stuff like that popping champagne, celebrating when they win. And it was a good idea. There was a problem, though, is that the, the TV co- the TV product was somehow even worse than the PGAs. So they'd poached all these players away from the PGA. They'd given them nine-figure salaries and eight or nine figures to, to, buy, to buy off their commitment to the PGA. PGA said, okay, well, if you do that, you can never come back. So some of them took the money anyway. A lot of people sort of on the back half of their career or on the very start of their career where they didn't have any particular allegiance to the PGA. Some of them thought they were bluffing, thought that they wouldn't be banned forever from the PGA. And so what ended up happening, the end result was a bifurcated professional golf. The PGA was watered down and no one ended up really watching the saudi back league anyway. So then there was lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit that was going on. They were suing one another back and forth. 
the DOJ was looking into the PGA at this point for antitrust issues, whether or not they were engaging in unethical or perhaps illegal monopolistic um, practices. And I will tell you, the PGA, which has a lot of money, was not going to be able to hang with the Saudi PIF uh, in terms of years-long lawsuits. So, it was a absolutely fascinating thing to watch because we know what's happening. The Saudi government, the people who are behind the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the most significant event in world history, the guy, Muslim Brotherhood, close to the Bin Ladens, but occasionally to journalism for the Washington Post, who got murdered probably with a bone saw, um, by MBS and on his orders, as far as we know, that they were going to basically buy off a American professional sport. It's kind of disturbing. But so then the establishment media in America just got the story all wrong the whole time, basically. They never gave a thorough analysis of why the PGA was failing. That their product, they didn't do a good job reaching out to the international community, boring TV product, and they started to do the woke stuff like, um, you know, corona lockdowns and canceling Trump. So, the, the golf media was mad that they had stopped their tournaments in the middle of the virus. Even though the tournaments were outside, we learned that the virus was not spreading outside, for the most part. Resource funded freaks. So many mistakes were made along the way to leave the PGA vulnerable. And the, the sad part was, is the product was very watered down. And just wasn't that good the alternate product wasn't that good. It's all been sort of sad. So then yesterday we learned that there's been some sort of partnership cut. Now here's the funny part about this. The big angle that the PGA was saying to the public is that if you go to this new Saudi tour, then you are responsible yourself for Khashoggi's murder. You're basically held up the bone saw to his arm or whatever, and you did the murder yourself. Jay Monahan, the president of the PGA Tour, literally invoked the 9-11 family, the victims of 9-11's families. This is not a joke, as Big Joey the Biden might have said. That he had spoken to families who had lost people 9-11 and that they were disappointed because I think all but one of the hijackers were either current or former Saudi citizens and uh, some of them, I think, been trained by the Saudi government. I mean, not a good thing. But again, they were literally bringing in the, if you go to this golf league and take money from these people, don't take it from China. That's not good. I mean, I mean, that's fine. You can take it from China. You could take it from Saudis via advertising. You could take it from Qatar sometimes in a Qatar tournament. It, it doesn't matter whatever evil far-flung place in the world you're getting your money. None of that was nearly as bad as this tour. If you took money from this tour, you were responsible for 9-11, basically. So that's where the PGA was a year ago. And now today, they're taking a big bag of cash from the Saudis. So basically crying uncle, saying, if you can't beat him, join him. And so now, most, uh, the MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is going to own a huge portion of American golf. So what does the deal look like? And that's the big question. So we know there's some sort of big partnership we know it was forged on the day Tony Blinken is showing up in Saudi Arabia allegedly to negotiate about oil because we're still not drilling here in the United States and we've got a 
uh, a, a foreign government, Saudi Arabia, which is threatening to reduce the oil supply that is being pumped uh, it, it, around the world, which is going to drive prices up. So they're in a, they're in the catbird seat, as you say, or in the pole position might be better, because the Saudis also try to buy um, racing. They've got a Formula One tournament. They're trying to buy off some of the best soccer players in the world. They mean business. We are heading into a new era. You might recall that they put $2 billion into a fund that's run by Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, former senior advisor. Uh, they've got a massive bag of cash, unfathomably big and growing. And they're going around the world and they are buying themselves good PR. This is not a bad idea for them. It's a great idea for them. And it really is how things get done. I mean, it's the, I was just thinking about the Abraham Accords, which Trump got done. And I love the Abraham Accords. I think it's one of the best things he did, where he was brokering peace with various entities in the Middle East. And how do you think he got it done? He took a bag of cash over the Middle East and said, what's it going to take? I mean, a little crass for storytelling sake of emphasis, but it's essentially what it is. You go over there and you start asking me what they want. And if the answer is something that you can give them, and that buys you PR, it buys you good graces from people, it buys you partnerships. What do you think China does? What do you think Belted Road is? Health Silk Road. What do you guys need? Okay, we can do that for you. Infrastructure, medicines, we got that. But you better believe that you're going to be doing stuff for us. In China's case, you'll be indebted to them for years. But here, in this case, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to put a PGA tournament in Saudi Arabia. I mean, how, how it's the it's not that bad in the scheme of things, is it? So, what does this deal look like? Why is everyone so interested in it? Um, and what does it mean? That we don't totally know yet. We really don't know exactly what's in it. Um, it seems like in the scheme of things, when the dust settles, it's kind of going to be a win-win for almost everyone. Um, the PGA is going to get unlimited supplies of money. So there's lots of these players who did the noble thing and they turned down the bag of Saudi cash two years ago um, and they you know, walked away from nine-figure sums to maintain their status on PGA Tour, keep the legacy going. Those people are going to have missed out on a lot of money. No doubt about that. But other than that, their purses are going to go up. Um, the prestige of the PGA is going to go up because I imagine they're going to create some sort of a new entity, but I think they'll do a, a, they'll be able to restore some of the legacy elements of the best players in the world playing in the PGA. And they're just going to be awash with Saudi cash and the Saudis are going to have a seat at the table and they're going to control a lot of stuff and they're going to get a lot of good PR, they're going to get a lot of good advertising. And every weekend that you're going to see a glowing, portrayal of the Saudi regime uh, on your TV. And what'll be funny to watch is that the people who are going to be tasked with broadcasting it, with um, promoting it, and taking a big bag of cash themselves are the left-wing golf media who thinks the single worst event in this century was the murder of Khashoggi. Of all of the murders that have taken place in the world, of all the acts of violence, terrorism, extremism, that even worse than January the 6th and way worse than 9-11 um, was this killing of this guy who worked the Washington Post. So 
Uh, that's where it is. It's super fascinating. Uh, I'll give you some winners and losers. Um, winner is uh, Donald Trump. Huge winner, massive winner, and I lead with that only a little bit to troll. I'm trolling a little bit with that. Hoping there's some woke media people who are listening. Um, but huge win for Trump. Trump is the only person who predicted that this would happen. He, he's the only person, literally. This was kept entirely under wraps, which is part of why I'm so excited about it, is that I follow this stuff pretty religiously, and there was seemed to be almost no inclination that this was going to go down. Even the players were shocked. They woke up, this deal got cut. And why wouldn't it be a shock? The PGA was talking like the idea of working with the Saudis was the same as working with the 9-11 hijackers. That was their position. And they wake up, and then all of a sudden they're partners. So... Um, uh, Trump's a big winner. Um, I hope he gets his tournaments back. He certainly looks good. Um, other big winners are the fans. The fans are going to get much better golf um, because the best players in the world are all going to be, instead of two leagues, are going to be in the same league. Um, I think the, uh, I think those are, those are key. I think long-term, all the golfers are going to do better too because there's going to be a lot more money in their sport. I think long-term golf media does well, too, even though they're having a really embarrassing day because none of them saw this coming and none of them wanted this to happen. I think there's going to be tons and tons of content for them. I think this is just a totally new era we're, we're in now where you have foreign governments trying to buy up entire professional sports for PR. Um, I think those are, those are key. But I think short-term golf media is a huge loser because they were totally uh, misrepresented this story they never talked about the wokeness element of it. They never talked the Trump about the Trump of it all. The exaggeration of thinking that of all of the evils that are done in the world, the killing of Khashoggi is the only one that matters. And they could not get this through their head. And I listened to a lot of golf podcasts, stuff like that. I read a lot about golf. And they could not get, get it through their heads. They tried. They could not get it through their heads. That if you're going to do a 20-year partnership with China, no one cares if, you, if someone's going to take Saudi money. No one's going to care if you do that. And they, they tried to talk themselves out of why that's a big deal, and they never got it, never able to understand. And it was fun to watch them squirm, I have to admit. Um, I mean, that's kind of where we're at. It's a big deal, and we will see how that helps U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia. We'll see the tracking MBS's ambitions, who's just a little older than I am who seems like a very smart guy with lots of money and ruthlessly ambitious, uh, is super interesting. And it'll also be interesting to see what the freakout is going to look like when there's just massive amounts of money that are going to be doled out, just passed out. So, um, I, 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 there's a few people who also deserve some interesting recognition. Jay Monahan was the head of the PGA, who's going to be now the CEO of whatever this new entity is. Um, the, the chairman of the new entity is going to be the guy who runs the PIF, the Saudi Investment Fund. Um, the, um, I want to make sure I get his name right. And of course, I've shut my window. This happens, you know. You're in a, you're in a, you're, you're you're on a roll, and then you know you get interrupted. Anyway, but Jay Monahan, who's the head of the PGA, he was the guy who was saying that basically you're as bad as a terrorist if you take this money. He's going to took all the money. Super interesting because he's going to be seen as one of the biggest hypocrites in the history of sports, and someone who told all these players that you are such a evil, awful person 
if you go take this money two years ago and now he's taking it all himself, um, he must see something that this is going to work out. And I'm really interested in, in that. I, I feel like, though, the using the 9-11 families as pawns, uh, it just I just don't know how you get past that. And that will be the narrative about him for the rest of his life, that he used the 9-11 families, brought them out, and said that you are betraying these people who've been through so much if you take this money. And then he took the money himself. I just cannot get over that. So amazing. So many meltdowns on golf media also. Just, just such a delight for those of you who care about the media. So that's where we are. And where do we go from here? What other sports do they try to buy next? They're trying to buy soccer. They're trying to buy NASCAR. And do other countries get the same idea? And can they pull it off? Because it just seems like everyone's got their price. So uh, very exciting that we get to talk about something other than transness and um, generic politics today. But sudden merger, super shock, surprise, and with a lot of really interesting implications and a big win for Donald Trump. How's that for an exciting one? Big cave by the PGA, but in the end, I think they get they get the last laugh in a way because I think they'll be able to restore their brand, which is getting attacked, and they're just going to have so much money to do a lot of stuff they want to do. Maybe this will go also help us move on beyond the Khashoggi obsession era, which for the record, Khashoggi should not have been murdered and he should not have been bone sawed by MBS, okay? Needless to say. But it was as if it's the only bad thing that's happened over the last five years on this planet. All right, 866-95-PATRIOT. If you want to join in, if you've got any thoughts on this. Um, other things that are going on, I will do, I guess, a quick woke update. There's a song called Boycott Target hit number one on Billboard's rap charts, reaching number four overall in terms of selling songs. So uh, it just shows you that there is a huge energy now that is emerging of people on the right who are trying to stand up, trying to get their voices heard on issues that are not um, necessarily uh, the this sort of thing where we would we would put our foot down in the past. And the trans stuff is getting out of control. And then now they got the trans Satanists selling clothing to our kids. This was the line that was crossed. And now we got rap songs going to number one, and that's sort of really fun. See, w- counterculture driven by the arts, uh, you feel like that could be a compelling way to get some of this anti-woke narrative out there, and I hope it is. I really do. And we need to move fast here. Uh, there is a, some shocking footing, the footage that Andy Ngo, who's been on the show, journalist covers woke left, mostly on Twitter, but elsewhere too, post-millennial, etc. Um, he had footage of Glendale, California, where police rushed in to save Antifa and far-left protesters during a fight against Armenian Americans outside a school board meeting. Many parents of, of immigrants uh, of, of immigrant background disapproved the school celebrating pride events. So Glendale is a huge population of Armenians and close to a couple of neighborhoods where I lived growing up. And they're apparently not in all the woke stuff. So a big fight breaks out. Police are coming in, trying to separate it. 
people are, are fighting in the street over whether or not it is appropriate to teach children, indoctrinate children really into this trans cult. That this is where the left cares so much, Antifa cares so much. They want it to be so overwhelming, the support for trying to get young youngsters just to obsess over gender ideology and gender identity that they're willing to fight in the street over it. Antifa's fighting over it. Police have to waste time, resources, incredibly dangerous. What are people trying to do here? What is the goal? What's the end game? Because I feel like there's a lot of plot that's being lost. John Nolte, an article for us at Breitbart about how the actress Elliot Page, formerly known as Ellen Page, no longer feels safe in L.A., because she is a trans person who is impersonating a man now, and that is is it doesn't mean you're you're no longer safe in L.A. Well, who's been running L.A. the far left? So if you're not safe, then maybe it's your own people who are not taking care of you in an adequate way. And America is such a tolerant. Place. Nolte, another great piece about how Disney's woke Little Mermaid is bombing everywhere on Earth aside from America. No one needs the woke Little Mermaid, but apparently here in America, we're, we're watching it. It's going to lose a lot of money. Overall, it's going to be a relative failure, but not because of the American box office. Americans went to see it. So the rest of the world wasn't interested in the new revamped Little Mermaid which got the most attention for casting the one ginger-headed Disney princess with a, a BIPOC princess. So that was apparently received fine in America, but not around the world. A student claims that a University of Cincinnati professor failed her for using a, a term biological woman, quote-unquote biological woman. Failed the student for using the term biological woman on an essay. Um, or an essay proposal about trans athletes competing in women's sports. Got an F. It's it, it, it's a literal expression. It's a legit expression. So, uh, tracking the Bud Light stuff. Um, the Wall Street Journal, a big story, how uh, consumers forcing the C-suite to retreat on transgenders. So, the corporations are going to have to dial back some of the transgender pride stuff. All good, but you know what else is buried in the article? You know it's still the number one selling beer in the country? Bud Light, still number one. Kind of gross, right? So even despite losing all the market share they've lost, still the most commonly uh, consumed beer. Bud Light. So there's certainly a limitation to how much a Go Broke, Go Woke, Go Broke is going to work. Worth keeping that in mind. Um, LGBTQ groups are mad at Target because Target backed down a little bit and they're at least starting to not promote some of the Satanist content that they're selling to kids. Satanist clothing. So it's just a, you can't win with the left. This is something that I learned very early. I learned this during, while I was still a student at UC Berkeley. Um, that is the left will never be satisfied. So if you want to go woke, 
that's fine, but just don't expect to ever be woke enough for the left because their standard that they're comparing themselves to is a utopia that has never been achieved and will never be achieved. And they will always use that standard to attempt to get what they want. This is different than how the right operates. We're trying to conserve. And if we want to change something, we want to do it gradually. But we're looking at our standards typically come from old documents. Uh, our nation's founding documents and the Bible specifically. Those are where the standards are. They're old standards. The left standards are new standards and they don't exist yet. And they're determined by, it's a moving target. Because the people who are making the standards are the institutional left itself. Which is getting every day more woke, more left wing, etc. Fights outside of California school board meeting over LGBT. I mean, it is just a, it's just very, very perilous right now in this country. We're already, we're already so negative at each other's throats, bummed out so often. And now we're fighting over something we do not need to fight about. There's no role for the federal government to encourage any sort of this behavior where people are going through gender transition, which involves mutilation, chemical castration. It is not the role of the state to be involved in this at all. And why we have to keep fighting over this, such a waste of time. All right, a few other items I want to get to before we go to the phones. Border crosser accused of murdering woman one day after Biden's Department of Homeland Security freed him into the U.S. We had an exclusive yesterday. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., running for president Democrat side, is at the border. I um, actually called Joel Pollack talking about his solutions for the border itself. Restoring surveillance infrastructure that was mysteriously removed three years ago. Interesting. There were cameras, there were camera towers, there were ground sensing devices that were literally torn up, uh, being stored in military bases. They're part of a patrol infrastructure. He said those are gone. And it's just neat to hear that he's um, so hardcore on the issue, calling it a dystopian nightmare. Joel asked him about the border wall. Kennedy said it clearly works in places. And that it should be completed where buildings have uh, already been bought. Though he did suggest that uh, we, they should do so in places that are not harmful to wildlife. That's all right. I'll take it. Good enough for Democrats. Newman Rowe found another buried lead in an article by The Atlantic where they acknowledge that the federal government is using migration to cut wages. Uh, one of my favorite stories right now most compelling things going on is seeing how the left is going to deal with the flood with the end of title 42 and the busing with the busing is working. So the busing is not going to stop. So you're going to see governor Abbott, et cetera, bus people elsewhere. And there are some sanctuary cities. as I brought up on yesterday's show who are not going to want to be a sanctuary for the crossers. They're going to want the sanctuary to be, um, they're not going to want to actually do the hard work of being a sanctuary city allowing the lawbreakers who are going to be arriving basically with nothing, it'll be a strain in the system, trying to figure out what to do with them, trying to protect them from deportation. They wanted the virtue signal, but now they're going to have to do the work. And some of them are not going to want the work. They're going to be complaining. They're going to be rejecting uh, the 
idea that they're going to have to take care of these people. You see, New York City Mayor Eric Adams has suggested actually opening his residence to migrants. That's right. We are going to see perhaps Gracie Mansion, where the mayor of New York resides. He's suggesting that perhaps illegal alien border crossers that were homeless because they just got here, they could potentially be going to Gracie Mansion to live. I was speaking with the staff to see if I can put a few families in a Gracie Mansion. I'm a big believer in leading from the front and it doesn't go against legal protocols because there are protocols that are yada, yada, yada. Who cares about legal protocols? He wants to put illegal aliens in the, in the, in the mayor's mansion. Are, is he taking crazy pills? The solution is we close the border. You cry, uncle. The solution is not let's put all the illegal aliens in the governor's, in the mayor's mansion. What are we doing to ourselves? It's it's so such great content. I mean, I love it from the content standpoint. All right, I got a lot more to do, but I got to take a break. But I will mention before we do, um, Tucker Carlson lost his launched his Twitter show yesterday. It was a ten minute monologue. Um, I watched it. It was super compelling. Um, I he covers a ton of ground. He starts with a really compelling case about how the Ukraine war is going and how Zelensky is teaming up with all the American warmongers and they're just relishing killing Russians and it's really gross and we're funding it all and the media is lying to us starting from there. And then he ended up somehow somehow weaving his way to that there are 100% confirmed there are aliens living among us or you know sending a alien rocket chip to our country and it was just it just it had something for everyone um so i was happy to see it i watched it all and it'll be really funny to see what sort of twitter numbers that they what, what sort of uh, uh numbers elon musk assigns to how many people are watching it um i'm gonna pull up what they got so it came up it went up last night everyone should watch it it's great content uh it's already musk is claiming 54 million people have watched it so one half of a super bowl um, do, do any of you believe that number? I mean, the 54 million people watched last night. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's an accurate number. Uh, they're just, uh, he's just selling your face. Musk. He's just like, let's just say 54 million overnight. That sounds good. Who's going to check it? Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, but it was good stuff. And I'm happy that Tucker's out there. <laughs> A little bit of an offbeat guest today, but in a very good way. Jay Ratliff is an expert in aviation, and he knows uh, how the airlines operate. He knows how the government has failed us in recent years, but also some loopholes to get back on track. And we get his take on some stuff that's in the news, but also some big picture stuff on why America is so bad at air transportation. So uh, I got a feeling we'll be talking to him quite a bit, but this is his maiden voyage on the show. Let's hear from Jay Ratliff. Jay, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining me. It's good to be here as always. Um, Let's talk about this story, this bizarre story of this uh, fighter jet uh, attempting to intercept small private plane 
of flying around Virginia airspace over Washington. The pilot was apparently slumped over, unresponsive, and people think that this is something to do with a sonic boom. I, I don't understand this stuff remotely, Jay, so catch us up on this story. What's going on and what does it mean? Well, we had a, a private aircraft, a, a business jet that was flying and uh, it uh, was unresponsive with regards to air traffic control. They tried to reach it several times and then there was a course change that had it headed towards the Washington, D.C. restricted airspace. And when you don't have any uh, communication with the pilot, uh, the protocol is to launch a military intercept to investigate to see what's going on. And given the distance that those jets had to travel, they had to go supersonic, and that's when, boom, uh, everything was shaking as they uh, were racing to get to the area in time. And uh, they did intercept the aircraft and saw that uh, they were able to observe that the pilot was slumped over the controls. So uh, the plane then eventually ended up crashing. Uh, the concern was it might have been some sort of a terrorist attempt to impact a, a target somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, that was quickly ruled out. Uh, the, we're being told that the military did not shoot it down. But look, uh, back in 1999, pre-9-11, when we had the Payne-Stewart flight, there was a, also a business jet going from Orlando to Dallas when it did not make the, the uh, correction, the course correction that was based on its flight path and continue to travel north instead of west, uh, the pilots were trying to be raised, and when the pilot wasn't raised, uh, again, military jets were intercepted to find out what was going on. So this is a protocol that takes place uh, then, pre-9-11, as it does now, uh, just to make sure that there's nothing going on that we need to take action for, and the military is prepared, based on the orders they receive, uh, to intercept and bring an aircraft down if need be. Wow. So did we? how many people were on the plane when it crashed? What we're being told, I believe four was the last number I, I heard, uh, the pilot and uh, two or three occupants at the time. And one of the things that's striking here is the fact that when we had the Payne Stewart flight that, that crashed, it was because there was a slight leak in the one of the seals in the cockpit window. And, and that allowed the oxygen to slowly uh, drain out, and it basically caused everybody to fall asleep. The windows were frosted up, and at that point in time, it was not possible to see inside the aircraft. This situation, you actually had a course correction late in the flight, and then you had the, the, the pilot is being observed as slumped over the controls. Now, normally when that happens, if it's just a medical emergency, you'll have somebody on board the plane grab a radio, talk, and see whoever they can reach to try to communicate what's going on board of the aircraft. And from what we're being told, that wasn't the case. Uh, then the airplane went into a steep dive, uh, dropping uh, 20,000 plus feet in a minute, and unfortunately crashed. And uh, the National Transportation Safety Board has been called in to investigate. They'll spend the next six, eight, nine months investigating the accident. They're going to look at everything from the maintenance records to the uh, latest medical records of the pilot, trying to determine the events that took place. We, we don't have on this particular aircraft, the benefit of a, of a black box that would allow us to have a cockpit voice recorder or a, a flight data recorder that would give investigators more information. So it's going to be quite the challenge for the NTSB to try to figure out what happened and then obviously to make whatever recommendations that they need to to try to prevent something like this from happening again. So what do we so do we have any sense of why the pilot was slumped over and passed out? And is well, there an you know, it, 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 
could have been a lack of oxygen. It could have been a, a yeah. heart attack. It could have been you know a variety of things that that could have caused the problem. Uh, but again, had there been a, an oxygen leak that would have caused the pilot to become incapacitated, at one point in time there would have actually been because of the temperature changes, the, the windows would have been iced over, fogged up, whatever you want to call it, that would have made it difficult for uh, the intercept uh, military to actually see inside the windows of, of the aircraft. So right now we've got dozens of, of unanswered questions. We have very few answers. And, of course, uh, you know, our, our heart just breaks for the families that uh, sure, were involved in this. And it's uh, it's a situation that to me, reminds me of the fact that, you know, we've got to figure, we've got to honor the lives of those that were lost by finding out what happened. But the other thing is, let's remember that we have thousands of, of airports across the country that have regional aircraft and small business jets and other types of general aviation aircraft that are sitting around on the tarmac that are very, very easy to access. And, you know, to me, when we're talking about the nation's security, that's something that we need to spend some time on. And sadly, we're spending all of our time, all of our attention, trying to prevent the previous attack uh, of 9-11 from ever yeah. happening again, instead of looking ahead on what could be the next possible scenario that could put uh, you know our nation at risk. Yeah, let me get your thoughts on a couple of quick post-9-11 uh, uh, protocols that are still in place. It just, mm -hmm. it, 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 What do you think of the current state of the security line, where we're supposed to take our shoes off and we got to scan our laptops and... You can't have a, a a deodorant that is not a, of a certain. If your deodorant's too big, you got to throw it out. It's the. Are, are we doing? What are we doing that you think is smart to keep in place? And what is it that just we've we overreacted twenty years ago and we just can't we can't bring ourselves to uh, take any rules off because we love putting rules on people. That's a great question, but I have to first start by saying that the attacks of nine eleven were not brought about by a lack of security. Uh, at any of the airports. Everybody did what they were supposed to do. Things got through that were supposed to get through. So it wasn't somebody dropping the ball that created that. And, and pre-9-11 versus then and now, it is much safer to fly now than it was prior to 9-11. To Remember, before 9-11, we were not screening any checked bags domestically. We were simply getting the bags, putting them on the airplane, and off it went. Now we're screening the bags, and that in itself is making things much, much safer. We're also using the full-body imaging scanners, which detect uh, powder liquid explosives on a person's body, which before, when we just went through the magnetometers, wasn't the case. Now, to address the question of the liquids and things of this nature, uh, that's brought about because there have been previous attempts for individuals trying to smuggle different types of uh, items on board an aircraft that collectively could be used to create uh, an onboard explosion. And that's one of the reasons that we're doing everything that we can to try to minimize that type of an attack by limiting the amount of liquids and different types of things that you can take on board an aircraft. It's needed. Uh, is it a bit, uh, I hate to use the word overkill, but uh, it is. I mean, many times we're guilty of managing the perception of security and safety versus actually doing anything about it. And to me, even though we are spending billions of dollars and rightfully so on screening inside the airports, let's also remember that we have 100,000 people a month that, that touch airplanes on the tarmac that have not been screened. Uh, these individuals have been pre, uh, they've gone through a background check, but you have airline employees, you have uh, different handlers that are working around the aircraft that go from the employee parking lot straight to the tarmac without being screened. Now, occasionally, they're subjected to random screening, 
look, there's only four or five airports in the country that screen the airline employees before they have access to the tarmac. We had to start doing it in Atlanta once it was discovered there was a gun smuggling ring that was uh, going on between Atlanta and New York. Uh, Miami's another airport that screens their employees. And when you look at the items that are confiscated from people who know they're being screened, it makes you wonder, goodness, what else might be going on? So we've got a lot of holes right now in security. And, you know, pre-9-11, on a scale of 1 to 10, we might have been at a 3. Now we're probably at a 6, something like that. So uh-huh. we've definitely made progress, but we've got a long way to go. Uh, why don't we board from both sides of the plane in America? This is something that other countries do, and we only board from the front of the plane. Uh, why do we decide on this, and what's your take on it? A lot of it has to do with weather. I mean, it would certainly make sense to bring everybody off the aircraft at the front and board everybody from the rear. Uh, That would allow us to turn airplanes much faster and get those silver revenue tubes in the air as quickly as possible. Airlines would love to see that. The problem is, of course, you have some individuals have a difficult time getting up and down steps. Uh, You have more people now requesting wheelchair access than ever before, not Mm. because they need it, but because they want pre-boarding to get on before everybody else for their carry-on luggage. Uh, and uh, but that, that weather is pretty much the big thing. Now, Southwest and a few carriers will do that, but yeah. they only do it in airports that have the nice weather that allow them to do so. Um, have you noticed that it feels like the experience of flying commercial is just getting, for whatever reason, just just more unpleasant? Uh, it seems like, it, and I don't know why this is, but it just seems like it's it, it, it's one place where this country really agrees. Everyone seems to agree that flying commercial is just a big a big pain in the butt and it used to i think be seen as much more of a privilege people used to dress up to fly and mm-hmm. uh, that's not that's not something that is going to be news to you jay but it, it is it just feels like i was just stunned at how i had interaction um i have a bunch of small children and we took a flight and i was just treated so rudely by the airline i need to call out the airline because almost all of them are rude uh, and i just i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe what i was witnessing that this is it just seems like you're going into enemy territory whenever you go on a plane. Uh, what do you think has changed now? Well, you know, when, when we got to the point that uh, airlines fell in love with uh, technology, where we could make our own reservations, uh, drive our own boarding passes, check ourselves in, uh, make the reservations, all those kinds of things, things shifted from uh, service to safety and and uh, passengers doing more than they've ever done before. Airlines cut their, their customer service personnel, and as a result, you have fewer people doing more work, and they're under a great deal of stress, and you're right. right. When we travel, we no longer enjoy it. We endure it. Just get me for, to point A to point B, and I'll endure it going through. Now, the good news is that we are seeing – I'm not a fan of the Biden administration in any way whatsoever, but I will say this. They're trying to hold airlines more accountable than any other administration yeah. ever has. And I appreciate that. And believe me, I'm going to give them credit for it because I'm going to get on them when they do stupid things so I can get on. No, you don't have to apologize for that because I I actually agree with you on this. And I'll tell you why it's it's important to bring it up also, because uh, one of Biden's gifts that no one acknowledges but me uh, is that he does try to give the voters what they want when he can do it. And and this is a mistake we make on the right as we act like he doesn't do this. There's a reason why he's keeps getting elected after 50 years is that he that that when he was talking about um in the state of the union address all these junk fees and stuff and Mm -hmm. uh, i'm sitting around kind of laughing but i I can guarantee you there are voters who are sitting around going oh that's a great idea like why do i keep getting nickel and dimed and all these fees Uh, he wasn't coming up with that stuff randomly it's the the people are very annoyed by that stuff and And it's easy money for him and excuse me to our credit 
we now know not to complain to the airlines. When we have a complaint, go to DOT.gov. That's the Department of Transportation website. Top box, just type in airline complaint in a very easy-to-use form will, will pop up where you can actually issue a complaint against an airline using the DOT website. That means your, your complaint doesn't go to an airline that can ignore us. It goes to the DOT, who then goes to the airline on our behalf, saying, here's a complaint, you need to respond, do so within 30 days, and yes, copy us in. The idea of, of trying to get an airline to do what they need to do, no. And, and there, were, there were times years ago, we would have 70 million people flying a month. And the total number of complaints coming into the Department of Transportation would be like 611. Mm. And then the next month, it would be 590. And they would say, wow, airlines must be doing a better job because the complaint numbers have gone down. And I'm screaming like, you got to be kidding me. 99% yeah. of the people don't even know you can use this. And that's the barometer <laughs> you're using to measure customer service? Give me a break. But now we're seeing that, that number explode into the tens of thousands, rightfully so, because now people understand going to the Department of Transportation causes the airlines to be held more accountable. If you've got a past or current or future problem with an airline, please go to DOT.gov, file your complaint. Everyone who works for an airline is screaming at me right now to shut up, but I'm not going to, because if yeah. you treated us better, we wouldn't have to do that. Okay, so so this is one place. So you give the Biden administration some decent marks here, but I, I just want to be clear what you are recommending people do. What have people been doing in the past, and then what are when are good moments to use this? I guess resource the government provides. Well, if I've got a complaint, let, let's say that uh, my flight was canceled, it was, and I didn't get the proper compensation. Look, I'm not going to get free travel for life, but but if, if I'm traveling with my family and the flight cancels. And they're saying, well, it, it had to do with weather. Well, weather means they simply have to put me on my next available flight, and I wait until I, the next flight. But if it's a mechanical situation, late arriving crew, something that the airline is, is within control of, completely different ballgame, then I, I, I should be put overnight if need be. I should be given meal vouchers. I should be given some compensation. So there are certain rules that are in place, sadly, Many times the airlines don't abide by those. If I've had a flight canceled because of a serious schedule change where I should be entitled to a refund, and the airline says, no, we're going to give you a voucher that's good for the next year, which most of those vouchers are never used, they expire, the airlines get to keep the money. Bad deal. So that's another time to go to the Department of Transportation saying, look, I should be entitled to a refund. I'm not getting it. Please help. And the DOT uh, will, will go to bat for us. So. When you start seeing the tens of thousands of planes coming through, that's what gives the DOT the idea that, wow, things are really screwed up. We really need to do more because the number of these complaints are growing, and rightfully so. And on any national or local interview that I do 2,500 times a year, every chance I get, I remind people, if you want better service within the airline industry, when you have a complaint, go to the DOT, file your complaint through there, and collectively, perhaps... We can force airlines to treat us better. I'm American made. I got American parts. That is today's show. Thanks so much to Zach Jones and two birthday boys. We've got producer Bill Barnett and Robert Marlowe, who is uh, not just my dad, but also helps me pick topics for the opening of the show. Both of them celebrating a birthday today, so happy birthday to both of them and all of you who support us and tell people about the show and go to brightport.com. I can't thank you enough. 
and I'll talk to you next time.